Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. I'm bear with me for few episodes as this is my first time recording. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello everybody. I have Salawar with me. First off, I have to collect words and guts to really talk about her. The people know her as a farmer, notorious attorney during Black Lives Matter who defied the system are one of the top female slam poets in the world, our professional troublemaker for the women organization for women the largest women organizations in the world people that have heard her speak in person know that this wasn't always her story because before she became selawar juris doctor she was caramel the sex worker when you hear her speak live she tells an addictive story of her resilience and how you can be your own superhero even when the world thinks you are otherwise people have seen her on tcl reality tv shows she is in charge cnn cspan bet and on the stage of march for women's life the largest march in history of the us for its time but live you get behind the scenes of her real version real story of how to get away with murder find out how selawar juris doctor went from bars to bars to bars yet no bars can break the unbreakable in her own words thank you for being here and welcome to the show that was a great introduction but it's an absolute honor to have you here oh no i am so grateful thank for this thank opportunity you so much for being here. please absolutely i wouldn't have missed it after i connected with you and talked to you on the phone it's it's been like it's i've been excited about this ever since we talked thank you so much with your introduction itself i wanted to start your uh, episode when you <clears throat> mentioned that you have a resilient story on how you can be your own superhero can you explain that in your words like what do you mean by you being a superhero by yourself oh my goodness so um ultimately you know growing up i had to be basically um the superhero that never came to rescue uh myself and my family you know we we were taught that especially as women that we have to wait for somebody to come and and create a better life for us or to change our world and nobody ever came you know as as a, a woman of color and as a black female one of the biggest things that resonated with me when i was younger is that i was always and not just me but most black females you know we're we're taught and we're told by our own community as well as outside communities that we are the least desirable uh women in the world you know that we are the least loved women in the world um uh, and i grew up you know feeling that way feeling like i wanted to be loved and i wanted to be um welcomed and i wanted to create this family that i felt like i lost at a later point in my life um but feeling like i wasn't worthy of that so i i went through life having to get to a point where i had to create my own superhero and had to learn how to love myself and how to value myself and how to get to that place of worthiness and once i found that strength within me i was able to transcend that and help other people along the journey if there is something that you can talk about that you have never spoke so far and if you are willing to share that kind of that parts of your story or your life i would really love to have to hear that oh my goodness um so yeah I, i'm kind of a uh, I'm an open I'm an open book for the most part so there you know I, I talk regularly about my story so that um in different aspects of my story so that I can help other young women who may be going through struggles realize that there is something on the other side and the biggest reason um initially I had to go through that like it, it wasn't something that I was open about I never told 
you know, about my history. I didn't talk about my mother's drug addiction. I didn't talk about um, being a sex worker between the ages of 12 and 19. Um, I didn't talk about, you know, not being desired and not feeling worthy as a black woman, but it was uh, actually uh, when attorney regulation <laughs> kind of outed me and they were like, you know what, um, you know, we have found out X, Y, and Z about you and now we're going to tell the world. And I had to go through my own internal healing around that because I wasn't really ready to have that conversation um, with the world. Um, I went through therapy and I went through coaching and I went through, through uh, spiritual development. And I learned in the process, you know, that I, you know, I needed to be able to be the first person to tell my story and not to let somebody else try to still tell my story before me, even if that was attorney regulation. So I started telling my story um, so that people wouldn't get it twisted so they wouldn't get it um, get it misconstrued. And after I started opening up a little bit more about my story um, was when um, I started to realize that there were a lot of people out there that would come to me, they'd be like, oh my God, I, I'm so happy that you, you know, you said that because it made me realize that I could do what I really wanted to do in life. And it made me realize that this wasn't the end of the game or it made me realize that, you know, this was just a comma in my life and not a period. So I realized that I had to keep telling my story um, so that other people could learn that their story had to continue as well. So that's that's how I got to that point. Wow. Okay. So I heard your uh, TED Talks where you were mentioning, you were talking about the leadership skills about it. So that's a part of your mm -hmm. story, uh, like how the other person helped you to come onto the pole. So, right. Yes. So when you are explaining that, like what exactly triggered that kind of a mindset on that spot? Oh, wow. Okay. So what triggered the mindset when I was, when I was on the post? So just to give you a little bit of history, to give everybody that's listening to us history about what we're talking about. So I was a sex worker. Um, I was introduced to sex, sex work between the ages of 12 and 19 years old. And it was really a progressive um, change that um, happened throughout my life. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about more about how it started, you know, after I answer the question, but it started, you know, my mother was uh, shot in a crack cocaine deal when I was 11 years old. Um, and she was paralyzed for several years. By God's grace, she was able to survive, you know, um, and her survival, as well as her commitment and her resistance to um, to that to to the word no and to failure is really what pushed me to be able to get to where I was today. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, what exactly do you mean when, you know, when you say sex work, what, what, what does that mean? What did you do? And I say sex work now because it's more of a politically correct term um, when we're referring to people that work in the industry, but, you know, most people will say, you know, hooker or prostitute or streetwalker, anything of that sort. You know, the long um, or the short story version of it is that, you know, when I was 12, between the ages of 12 and 19, it started out, you know, just, you know, interacting with people who I wanted to, who I thought were interested in having relationships with me. Um, a lot of them were older men at the time. Um, and then it, um, it, it progressed to having people pay for sex. You know, I would go to parks, trailer parks, community parks, children, youth parks, um, and then I would trade uh, sex for money. Um, and then it transcended over time, you know, as, as you progress through the industry over time, you find different ways to be able to sell. Um, some at some certain points that, you know, that was in strip clubs, at certain points that was in escort services, at certain points it was just 
on the streets, you know, in different ways. Um, so it, it, it was different aspects of the sex work industry um, that I experienced over time. The particular time that you're talking about that I spoke about in my TEDx talk uh, was a time when I actually was in a slightly better place because I was in a strip club at that point. Um, and while I was in the strip club, one of the biggest issues that I had is that even though I was a dancer at the time, I couldn't dance. Like I, I, I really never had a whole lot of rhythm in my life whatsoever. And a lot of people are like, how the hell can you be a stripper or in a strip club and not be able to dance? You know, so I, I generally would do VIPs because in, in VIPs, you can get really close to somebody and they would never know that you dance. You can, you know, just do a little bit of this all the time and they would never know that you could dance. Um, so it was always so scary for me to be able to have to get on stage, right? Because if I got on stage, then people would see that I couldn't dance. And then there was also that big, scary, intimidating pole. And I was like, oh my God, I don't think I can get up on that. Like it would never happen. You know, so it took me a little strength to be able to um, to start to, to, to get to the point where I can dance on stage. But um, the, the hack that I used at that time was that I, uh, I would be the first one to go on because if I was the first person that could go on the stage, then that means that they hadn't seen anybody else, you know, so they didn't have anything to compare it to. So he wouldn't think that I was that bad if I was getting on stage. Um, and plus like, you know, we had security guards who would be like, you know, if you ain't throwing money, I don't care if you can't dance, we're kicking you out, right? So we had backup team that was gonna make sure that they paid us. So going on early in the night, was always the best bet for me, right? But there was this other girl, she was beautiful, gorgeous, um, that everybody loved. And me and her actually friends today, she actually came to my birthday party, um, my 40th birthday party a few months ago, um, but her name was Delicious. And uh, she was real like thick and curvy. And I just knew that I did, the last thing I wanted to do was go behind her. Um, but while, you know, in the beginning portions, you know, she didn't know me, I didn't know her. So we never really communicated. I'm trying to go on first and she just jumps in front of me, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe she jumped in front of me. Like everybody loves her. I cannot go on behind her. So I'm just not going to go on stage at all. I'm just not going to do anything, right? So I just went ahead to my VIP and I was like, you know what? I'll try another day. The next day, right? I was like, okay, you know what? She got in front of me yesterday, but today I'm going to go ahead and go on first. But she jumps in front of me again. So I'm like, God, like this is the second day in a row, right? Um, and I, you know, I let her have it. I didn't do anything about it. But um, when I went home that day, I was kind of like, you know what? I can't let nobody pump me. You know, girls in the industry, even though we treat each other like family, we know that you can't let anybody think that you're weak. So I had already given her my spot twice in a row. So I had to kind of take a stand at this particular moment. So I had made my, my resolution that night that when I went in the next day, that I was going to go on first. And she was not going to take my spot, right? So um, the next day I went back the third time, tried to go on and she was about to jump in front of me again. But this time I was like, yo, hey, you know, I'm supposed to go on first. You're going to jump in front of me twice already, third time. You know, we can't keep doing this, right? Um, and I just knew at that point that we was going to have to fight. Like I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to start something. Let me wrap up my hair, <laughs> you know, let me get prepared for what's about to come. But I was pleasantly surprised, you know, and that that's one of the biggest strengths in sisterhood that she didn't want to fight. And she was like, you know, I know that you're about to go on stage and you're about to do your thing, whatever the case may be, but I am really not trying to go on stage behind somebody that's really trying to dance. And this was a, an epiphany to me all of a sudden. I was like, really? 
like, you don't want to go behind somebody that can't dance? Oh, shoot, I can't dance either. Like, it was, it was the golden moment, right? Um, so at that point, we actually connected uh, behind being vulnerable, right? And vulnerability is so important in everything we do. Like, I have to be vulnerable when I'm telling my stories. I have to be vulnerable when I'm telling my history. But I had never been willing to be vulnerable before that because we're taught in most industries, but especially in sex work, that we have to be hard, right? We can't let nobody take advantage of us. We have to be the alphas. We have to make sure that people listen to us, right? So we're taught that we have to be hard in life in so many industries. Like in, in, in all actuality, we all have a sex worker persona. Every single one of us has a sex worker persona, but we don't like to admit it. But this really you know, requires us to think about when have we sold ourselves out before? When have we sold ourselves for less than our value before. So there's so many times um, that each of us go through this sex worker persona in our lives and we don't even know it. Even when I became a lawyer later on in life, you know, I still was selling myself short for something less than what I was worth. Um, but we'll come to that a little bit later. But um, so uh, she ended up teaching me some um some some tricks of the trade that we could use on stage you know so that we so that the audience wouldn't know that we could dance and it was an epiphany that hey you know i don't really have to dance on stage i can do just tricks you know and realize you know that people will still be entertained my job is not necessarily to specifically dance but my job is to entertain them right so i can entertain them in a unique way um, one particular time, we were both going on this pole together, right? And she didn't know that I couldn't get on the pole yet, especially being a thick girl, like a big girl. You know, I've always been thick. I wasn't as thick as I am now, but I've always been a little bit thick, right? So to me, pulling myself up the pole was still a challenge. I still didn't have the body weight, the upper body strength to be able to pull up all my weight. So she jumped on the pole. She was like, hey, come on, you know? And I'm like, woman, like... I can't do that, <laughs> you know? But I was too embarrassed to not get on the pole. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to do something, right? So I tried to get on the pole. I got, you know, got one foot up there, got another foot up there, tried to pull myself up and I got halfway there. So I thought that I had gotten in the game. I was like, oh, well maybe, maybe I'm gonna learn something, you know? Like maybe I know how to get on the pole now, but unfortunately I couldn't get the rest of the way of the pole. I could only get half and I still couldn't pull myself up. And then the worst part about it is that because I was sweaty, so I sliding down, right? Why everyone was watching me. And then, you know, we have the negative self-talk that we all give ourselves in our head when we think somebody is plotting against us. Somebody is setting us up. Somebody is trying to do something wrong to us. And even at that point, I started thinking that about this sister friend who had just, you know, we had just built this relationship together, right? And I started thinking, you know, she's setting me up. You know, she's trying to embarrass me on purpose. You know, she did this so that nobody will ever want to pay me. Like she's, you know, interfering with my livelihood here. Like this was, you know, this was a plan from the beginning. So I started hating her in my head just in a matter of seconds. And she saw me down there struggling. And what she ended up doing is reaching down and pulling me up to her, right? Because I didn't have the body strength to do it myself. And then afterwards, she like jumped down the pole and just split right there, right? And everybody was excited. Everybody was like, oh, right, it was exciting, right? Um, and to the rest of the world that saw that show that night, they thought it was just a part of the show, right? But to me, it taught me so much more about sisterhood and empowerment and how important it is 
for us to support each other. Whether we are in our downs or our ups, we have to support each other and pull each other. We have to lift each other up while we're climbing, even if we're just climbing up a pole. So um, those are some of the most valuable lessons that I learned in my lifetime, even more valuable than what I learned working for the National Organization for Women, like you said, the largest women's organization in the world, or being an attorney, or, or being you know, in a business architect at an international business architect firm. The most valuable lessons that I did learn in my life was really in the sex industry, because that's when we're forced to work with each other and we have to strip away all the other titles that life tries to give us some time. So when you're mentioning about you learned sisterhood and that is one of your life lessons, what could be another life lesson that you think that really build your life apart from this specific uh, scenario? Another life lesson that I, well, one of the biggest things that I had to learn um, even after, um, even after becoming an attorney because I was very, I was very dependent on titles for a long time because I was trying to get away from the title of nothing in my life. I was trying to get away from the title, title of, of being black um, trying to get away from the title of being a woman, trying to get away from the title of, of being fat, you know, trying to get away from the title um, of being a sex worker, you know, or having a reputation of having a, a criminal background. Like I was trying to get away from all of these titles. And once I got to the point where I really um, could, you know, strip myself, what I thought was stripping myself of those titles, and I realized that I could become an attorney. And we'll talk about that a little bit later too, um, about how you know the, the resilience that comes with hearing no so many times when everybody's telling you, no, you can't do this. Um, but um, once I became an attorney, I was very much attached to that title because I wanted to get away from these other titles because I thought that they didn't make me feel good. You know, so everywhere I went now, instead of being Salah or the sex worker, now I was attorney ward. Right. Um, and I thought that I had found my confidence somehow. I, I felt I felt that I had found my self-worth. I felt that, you know, nobody could tell me that I'm not worthy anymore because look, I'm an attorney. I am what they said that I was supposed to be in life in this world, right? Um, and it wasn't until I stopped being an attorney. Um, and I opened up my business architect firm later, but after I stopped being an attorney, I had to get to the point where I did not have that title anymore. I was just the regular brown fat girl, again, that had a history before. Um, so everything was stripped away and I realized that some of the, um, the titles that I was attached to was giving me this superficial confidence, right? Um, and I, I realized that even when I was, you know, practicing law, that I was I was selling myself short. One thing that I remember so many times is that when I was when I was a kid, you know, and I call it the the fat um, the fat girl entrepreneur uh, complex is that a lot of times I would sell myself short in my relationships. A lot of times I would tell, you know, I would I would try to convince people to be with me by offering all of these things. And I was like, hey, you know, look, I can cook. Look, you know, I can do anything you want. Look, I'm always gonna be here with you. Look, I can help you do your homework. Look, I can help you do all these things. Look, I have all of this stuff, you know, and I'm valuable because these other people pay me to do this, but I really just wanna be with you, right? So I was selling myself short because in my head, I thought that I wasn't worthy. So I had to give them reasons to just love me, 
you know, to just want to be with me when it just had to be me, you know, instead of all of these things that was attached to me, but I was trying to give them all these bonuses. Plus you get this and there's more like, like, like we were in some like, you know, late night show, <laughs> you know, uh, what they, what do they call those things? Um, um, those tele, those telemarketing shows in the middle of the night. Right. So I was selling myself, like I was one of those late night shows trying to convince people to love me. And I realized that when I started practicing law, I started doing the same thing too. So when um, initially I was working for a large firm, um, a large law firm where I did business and uh, bankruptcy transactional work um, before I started my, my own law firm. And when I first started my law firm, I didn't um, I didn't realize like what to charge for bankruptcies, like because when I was working at the firm, nobody ever told me, you know, what they were what they were charging the customers. So I ended up charging customers three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars for for chapter sevens when everybody else was charging them a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, even five thousand dollars if they were doing chapter thirteens. So I was selling myself short in the process. Um, and what I found out in the long run is that I started to become overworked. I was overwhelmed. I felt alone because I had all this work to do by myself and I didn't have any support system, you know, to help me get through this work. Um, and I really couldn't do a quality job for the clients that I had. And they really couldn't see who I was because I could only give them a certain amount of time, you know, to be able to help them and to represent them. And nobody was happy in the long run because I wasn't charging what I was worth. And I realized that I was still treating my my law customers the same way that I was treating my sex workers customers right because I wasn't valuing myself I was trying to give them a deal I was trying to convince them hey let me give you these bonuses for working with me you know um, and it and it really put me in a position where I had to evaluate how many times in my life I had sold myself short and I undervalued myself and how many times we all do it and that's where I started to really realize you know, that we all have this, this sex worker persona that we have to battle with, that sometimes we're ashamed of, or that sometimes we don't want to tell people about. Um, so that I would say that one of the biggest lessons that I learned from that was to value myself and to charge what I'm, what I'm worth. If I can go back to your childhood, you said you started your life at 12. So apart from you not being loved at home, I, I believe that is the reason for you to start that, or is there any other reason for you to get into that kind of a work at all? Well, um, I don't think that it wasn't that I, was, I wasn't loved at home because I do think that I was loved the best way the people around me knew how to love me. You know, one of the biggest things that I had to learn even in my adult life, because I get frustrated a lot, you know, with, with people, you know, it's easy to get frustrated with people is that I had to learn that everybody around me was doing the very best they could, you know? Um, and we have these expectations that this is what your mother is supposed to do for you. This is what your father is supposed to do for you. And if you don't get that, then somehow you are missing out on what you deserve. And then it holds us back in the long run because we're like, oh, I never had a mom or you know, my mom never liked me or my dad wasn't there. He abandoned my mom at this age. And you know, my brothers don't do this and my sister don't do this. We have these mental um, things that hold us back because we're telling ourselves this story that we were supposed to have something when in, in reality, everything is happening in divine order. 
everything is happening exactly the way it should. So I do think that um, that I was I was loved, uh, and I think that my mom and my dad and the people around me was loving me the very best they could. And I think that um, I had to go through that journey to get to the journey that I am today, you know. And even when I was going through the journey, I um, I didn't feel like it was something that I was experiencing that was bad. I honestly, at the time, with the exception of people talking about me, I thought that I was living my very best life. You know, I felt like I was living my best life. I felt like I had things, you know, that other people didn't have. The first thing that I was trying to get in my life was that I was trying to prove my worth. And, and I, I sometimes like in my history, while I was going through my development, especially when I was younger, I would tell myself, you know, well, my mom didn't love me. That's why I had to go out and get this other love. But it, it really wasn't that. It's, it was really that I had to learn to love myself. You know, I had all these echoes that was going on around me in the community that I felt like was telling me that they didn't love me. And because they didn't love me, whether it was society or the neighborhood boys or the teachers or whoever I was dealing with, you know, I thought that it was because they didn't love me, but it was really because I wasn't loving myself. So I had all these people, you know, that were around me telling me that I wasn't worthy. And for some reason I started to believe it, you know, that I wasn't worthy. Um, so initially, you know, when I first got into it, it was really a way for me to, you know, prove that I was worthy. It was a tangible item that I could use um, to say, look, this person paid me this amount. Are they paying you that amount? See, I'm worthy. Look how much I'm worth. They're paying me more than what you're getting to do the same thing. Um, so in, that was the initial, that was, that was, those were the initial stages. Um, and then as I got older, you know, I unfortunately, but hey, it's the path of life. I started using other ways to prove my value. Like, hey, I'm an attorney. See, I'm worthy now, you know? Hey, look at my house. You know, it's worth X, Y, Z amount of money. See, I'm worthy now. You know, look at my car. See, I'm worthy now. And I really had to strip everything down and lose everything before I found that I was worthy just for being me. What was the process like when you are finding that self-worth? What was the process like when I was finding my self-worth? <laughs> it was a lot it's of crying. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not the overnight thing. You have to go through like, yeah, stripping one after the other, which you thought that is life. And you have to like detach all those things to be where you are today. Honestly, I think it's still a process because we are all still learning our self-worth. We're all trying to get a little bit better today than we were yesterday, you know? So I'm still trying to just be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And I still cry. You know, I still have moments where somebody is talking over here and I'm like, oh, I'm thinking I'm just that talk, like, let me get myself out of it. You know, but the difference between who I am now and who I was then is that today I have the tools to counteract it. Today I have the tools when I see that I'm, I'm hearing the negative self-talk, I, I can say, you know what? Okay, that, I, I know what's going on here. Let, let, me, let me process let me let me work this out all right you know let me let me get my affirmations let me read my spiritual books let me meditate a little bit let me breathe in some great smelling essential oils let me just ground myself to get rid of all of the negativity that the world might be trying to give me 
So like I, I'm still going through that process today and I will be going through that process until I die because what that's, and, and I honestly feel like that's what the trans, um, transition is. It's giving to that, getting to that level of ascension where we realize our own self-worth. And once we realize how powerful and spiritual and connected to God we are, then we will ascend to somewhere else, you know? So we're all going to go through that process until our dying day. When you say about self-love, what is called self-love in your words? Self-love is connecting to myself, connecting to, I really do, I feel like we are all connected. As human beings, we're all connected to each other and we're all connected to God, right? So when I say that I gotta get, um, I have to, to, I want more self-love, it also means that I have to have love for other people, the people that are surrounding me, even when I don't like them, you know? If I can't have love for them when I don't like them, then I can't have love for myself when I'm mad at myself, you know? So to me, self-love is loving myself more, like being connected, being present, right? I think that one of the biggest things that we've learned in the coronavirus is how to just be present yes. and how to feel when we didn't want to feel before. We had so many distractions going on in the world that we didn't even know how to feel anymore. Like we, you know, we had this so much, this felt for us, this phone, it felt for us. This is how we expressed emotions. So, um, you know, self-learning is learning how to feel and how to connect to ourselves and also connect to each other. When you mentioned that you have affirmations that you say, can you mention some of your own affirmations that you tell yourself? <laughs> you know, um, I think that, so I have things that I, I, I have written down, like I always have to take, you know, a notebook with me, like when I want to remind myself of something that I'm doing. I also have, like, I, 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 I make sure that I have tools so that I can counter anything that's negative going on in my life. Like I have my calendar that I also use and I take that everywhere with me as well. And it has all my affirmations in it. Like, it's like, it'll tell me to seize today and don't forget to be kind and you're beautiful no matter what and rock this out queen. Like I have so many different things that I put in here um, that I want to remind myself of on a daily basis. Um, one of the biggest things is that um, I'm a poet as well. Like I was a spoken word artist before I was an attorney, I would tour around the country and around the world. I went to some places internationally as well, uh, doing spoken word and poetry. And when I didn't feel like it was okay to say those amazing, beautiful things to myself because people would think that I was um, being you know, vain or they'd be like, who are you to say that you're beautiful? Or who are you to say that you are a superstar? Who are you to say all of this? you know, great things about you, right? Um, so um, when I didn't feel like it was okay to say those things to myself, I, I wrote it in my poetry, you know? And I would perform it on stage. And I, I would use that as my affirmations constantly to tell myself all the things that I felt like I couldn't tell myself because the world were gonna say, well, you're not cute. How can you say you're cute? You're not gorgeous, you're fat, you know? look at you, you're, you know, an ugly black woman. Like, how can you say all this stuff? I used my poetry and it gave me, uh, it gave me this avenue to say all the things that I needed to say without the judgment from the world. Wow, okay. What you also say, like, uh, you, you should be able to love the people that you don't like. Mm -hmm. 
How do yes. you actually do that? What kind of a process? <laughs> I mean, I, I wanted to learn that too, because sometimes at the very edge, in some of the moments, we'll just snap. Though we keep telling ourselves like, yes, we should be kind, we should be supporting each other. And yes, we have to be like liking the people that we don't like for whatever the reason it is. Even at times you just snap out for some reasons, maybe that those are inside you itself. Like, I mean, you are going through some bad day or something. If a person that you don't like come and talk to you, you might just snap out. But what mm -hmm. kind of a process are like, how do you actually like take that in and say, yes, I don't like that person, no matter what the person is, but I'm still going to like them. Mm. You know, I, I had to deal, you know, I had to come, come to terms with that, like quite a few times in my life. Um, and especially, you know, while I was going through my healing, especially going through the healing process, you know, I had to come through that process with attorney regulation. I had to come through that process with my ex-husband, had to deal with that process through my mom. I had to deal with it, you know, with my siblings, with, you know, people that I felt didn't support me when I had my law practice going, you know, with prosecutors, with judges, with police officers. I had to deal with so many, so many people, um, because I had to do it to heal if I was not able to love the people that I felt didn't necessarily always, you know, support me, then I wasn't going to be able to love myself during those hard times. But the biggest thing that helped me was to be able to see the loving essence of every individual, right? When they were doing something that um, was, was against what I wanted, I had to ask myself, when was there a time that I felt like that? You know, when was there a time that um, I treated somebody the way that they're treating me, you know, and how did I feel? Like, what, what, what was the reason that I did that? What experience did I go through that made me treat this person like that? Like, I had to really put myself in their reflection so that I could relate to them. And it really, it helped me to forgive myself more because most of the time when I was angry, it was because I hadn't forgiven something in myself, like it was something that I was mad about, you know, that I hadn't come to terms with. It had really nothing to do with them, but we kind of reflect things that's going on within us internally on other people. You know, like what yesterday I got upset with my brother because, um, you know, he ain't clean the bathroom. <laughs> like I was like, I, it was actually today. I told him yesterday, but I was upset with, about it today. Um, and um, like, it, it, there are certain things that will really piss me off because like, I'm like, why can't they just do this? You know, what kind of person won't do this? You know, and I had to kind of take a moment in my brain so that I didn't yell or I didn't get upset and realize, well, you know what? Why, what is it that I'm really mad at? I'm mad because I want to be in a different place. I'm mad because I want a different house. I'm mad because I really don't like my bathroom. I'm mad because I don't have somebody to help me clean. You know, like there's things that I could have done to uh, fix this situation where that had nothing to do with them. Like I had to go through all of the stuff in my head and then I had to start thinking, well, you know, there's been times where I haven't cleaned the bathroom. There's been times where I came home and I was so tired that I couldn't do anything and the house just made, was a mess. There's times when, you know, like I, I might've cleaned and I missed some spots and somebody brought something up to me later, you know, like I've experienced that. So I can't get it mad at him. And that's just a small situation, right? But how about when people do really do big things to you, you know, like they do big things, like they, you know, hurt somebody that, that you really cared about and that you really love, mm. you know, it just really helped to be able to, to understand that I've hurt people too, you know, and, and to see 
if I could see the loving essence in them, I could see the loving essence in myself. I can forgive them, I can forgive myself. Once I started being able to forgive other people and doing things for other people without even anticipating or expecting to have anything back, you know, like just doing it because I just want to do something for somebody, you know, just doing it because once I got to that point, I actually was able to forgive myself for some of the things that I was ashamed of, some of the things that I was embarrassed about, some of the things that I didn't want anybody to know. You know, like it, it, it took me a long time to get to the point to forgive myself for doing all the things that I did as a sex worker, to forgive myself for treating clients like transactions, to forgive myself for pe treating people like they were only worth the amount of money that was in their pocket, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, like I, I had to so that I could get to that point in my own healing. When you were mentioning that you had gone through that shameful moment or anything, was there any specific moment every time you think about a word, sometimes you will get a specific scenario or a memory that triggers back to you like, yeah, this was the shameful moment for me or like, this is where I carry my guilt from or else even like, I regret this moment in my life. Was there any specific moments that you recollect and feel like, yes, these are something that I'm built out of? Honestly, every time I meet a new person, <laughs> Every time I meet a new person, like I have flashbacks, you know, of, of feeling less than worthy, you know, because I know that I have to reintroduce them to me all over again. And sometimes it feels like trauma, like, okay, I have to tell them about this bad stuff I did now, you know, but hopefully they'll like balance the good stuff I did and not judge me, you know, and then I'll have all of this, this negative self-talk in my head again. Um, but like I said, now I have the tools, you know, to process them. And then I go through my forgiveness. Like I go through my forgiveness every time because I do still get emotional because I have memory, fear is memories, right? Fear is memories, it's it, re-experiencing memories over again. And then I'll have a memory, you know, when I'm meeting somebody of how somebody else treated me in the past when they found out I was a sex worker or when they found out some other stuff that I did in life. You know, and then I'll start getting fear, like, oh my God, this is gonna go bad, you know? And then um, I use my tools, you know, and I, and I forgive myself. Uh, even if it comes to the point where I actually have to go to the mirror and sit in front of the bathroom and, and, and just really process, close my eyes and say, I forgive myself for judging myself for being a sex worker. I forgive myself for judging myself for doing something that I didn't feel like valued myself. I forgive myself for judging myself for having sex with people that didn't care about me. I forgive myself for judging myself for giving my heart to people that didn't respect me. Like sometimes I just have to go in and just say it to myself over and over and over and over again when I can't get the talk out of my head. And now I'm a little bit stronger than I was, you know, 10 years ago. Were you confident all the time or like the confidence was built over the time when you started changing your titles, when you were mentioning about the titles? You know, I still go through issues of confidence regularly, you know, and a lot of people, um, what they see when they see, when they say that I'm confident or what, when they say that I'm confident, what they see is are, are my affirmations, you know? So they'll see me reaffirming 
like how I want to feel about myself and how I'm going to step into my day. Like it might be, you know, maybe they see a Facebook post post where I'm talking about an experience or maybe, you know, I, when I wake up, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hyping, I'm ready to go. And I, you know, I'm calling people to you telling them positive affirmations. So they see my affirmations and they'll automatically say, Oh my God, you're so confident. You know, you're so this, you're so that. Um, but you know, it's like I said, it's all a journey every day, but the biggest, the biggest revelation that came to me in my confidence was when I stripped myself of everything that I felt gave me value. I had to strip myself of everything that gave me value and just be Salah. I couldn't be Salah, you know, the attorney. I couldn't be attorney ward. I couldn't be, you know, ward esquire. I couldn't be that chick that live over there in that big house. I couldn't be any of that stuff anymore. Like I, I really, I, I started to regain my confidence once I was forced to strip myself of everything um, that had indirectly given me confidence previously. Even my body, like even my body. I had to be stripped of even my body because um, I have a lot of like, you know, fat girl pride now, you know, and I've always had this fat girl pride, but I, about 15 years ago, I had gastric bypass surgery, right? So I lost 200 pounds after gastric bypass surgery. And when I had gastric bypass surgery, it was like all of a sudden my personality changed. Like it was something that clicked and freed up for me. And I thought that that click or that freedom was just about me building my confidence over time. But I found out later I was attached to this 200 pound weight loss and that it was giving me a, a superficial confidence, right? Mm -hmm. So not only did I lose all this other stuff, but once, you know, once I started, when, once I moved and, and left the house and left the practice and, you know, and lost my relationship and all of that stuff, um, I broke my leg twice, right? And I was on a walker for a couple of years. Um, and during that time, I wasn't able to move around like I normally was. So I gained like a hundred of those pounds back, you know? So I lost my body too, you know? And I didn't even realize that, that like that I could lose that, you know? So I lost completely everything. Like I had gone through 15 years being like, oh, I can't gain the weight back. You know, I had gastric bypass. They cut my stomach out. I can't, I can't do this, you know? So I, it was really just, just being stripped of everything that society gives you to place value and then just trying to find that value in myself. Were you ever feeling like a victim mode that you are a victim of something and you carried that victim mode in you? Um, yeah, you know, I think that there was different moments in my life that I went through um, feeling like the victim, but I had to turn that into the victor. You know, like it, it really came uh, with uh, me learning to rephrase and reframe everything that happened to me, you know, really embracing the idea that things don't happen to me, they happen for me, you know, so that I can get to this next place, you know, as a sex worker, as you know, you know, when I transitioned from my from being practicing law to being a business architect, you know, when I lost my relationships, when I lost you know, my house, when I lost so many things in my life, um, you know, there were so many times where I was just upset and mad and just feeling bad for myself, you know? I remember when I, and these are some things that I ain't told nobody, but I remember um, 
when I was leaving my house, like my house that I had before I moved to Georgia, it was my dream house. I felt like it was my dream house, you know? Like it was everything that I ever wanted. Like I used to just ride up and down the elevator and cry because I was like, I never thought I would have an elevator. Oh, I'm so happy. Like I was so happy. Just, you know, I, I felt like it was everything I wanted. So um, when I lost my house, you know, I had um, me me and my, my siblings were packing up. They was trying to help me pack up and I was moving from Colorado to Georgia and we had two 26 foot U-Hauls and I couldn't fit everything in them, right? Like I couldn't fit everything in and we were gonna drive it across country, right? And I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to fit things in it and I had to leave like a quarter of, of my stuff just outside, you know? And um, I like, and it was just something in me that didn't want to leave. So I like I looked my and my siblings were like, you know, Salah, we gotta go, you know. And I had two little boys at the time. They was like, we gotta go. We can't stay here anymore. And I fell out on the floor. I was like, I'm not leaving my house. I'm not leaving my house. Like I was just crying. I was like, no. Like and they literally like I was so distraught, you know, that they had to take my kids. Like my brother, my siblings had to take my kids and just go to Georgia without me. Cause I was so like, I'm not going. I worked my whole life for this house. No, like I was so sad. I was so sad. Yeah, I can't even remember the question you asked me before. <laughs> like, I can't remember what you asked me, you know? No, I asked about you have ever felt like a victim more and you've said like, yeah, it is not victim. You felt like a victim more. Yeah, when I, when I was losing my house, I felt like a victim. You know, like I felt like, I felt like my world was crashing down around me, <laughs> you know, not to mention, you know, that um, not only when I lost my house, that I was I losing my house, but somebody um, while I was leaving ran a vehicle directly into my house, my, like my dream house. They ran a vehicle through my dream house, you know? So <laughs> it was just, I was just so, I was so, I was like, look what you're doing to my beautiful house, even though it's not mine anymore. <laughs> look what you do. I was so hurt. But what I learned after I left is that that house was kind of like, it was, um, it was, it was a, it was a chain. Like it was a prison. That house was a prison because just to pay for that house, uh, I like, I had to work 15, 16, 17 hours a day. I would leave every morning at six or seven o'clock in the morning, you know, to, to go to work. And I wouldn't get home until one or two o'clock in the morning at night. Like my kids never saw me because they was asleep when I went up, when I left in the morning and they was asleep when I got home. They started calling other people in my house, mommy, because they never saw me. They, they didn't know, they didn't know who, they didn't have any connection to me whatsoever. I was so exhausted that I never, like it wasn't until I was leaving that I started to pay attention to the, uh, the wallpaper on the wall. I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful wallpaper. Oh my God, look at these marble floors. This is so gorgeous. I had never looked at them, you know, because I was always working so hard because this house was a chain to me. Like I was like, oh my God, I gotta pay for this house. You know, like I was so stressed out all the time. All my family members, they were detached from me because I was always working, which made me irritable. You know, like I didn't want to like spend any time. I was just tired all the time, you know, and I would snap on them in an instant because I was so tired all the time. Like my employees at my law firm, they were frustrated with me because I was always snapping because I felt like I had so many responsibilities. 
once I finally let go of that house, I realized that, first of all, I was able to have a more, a more of a connection to myself. I was able to do things that I love, do things to ground myself every day. Like when I was in that house, like I couldn't pray every morning. I couldn't meditate every day. I couldn't read a book just so that I could get grounded in my day and have a better day and clear my brain. Cause I didn't have time because I was already leaving at six o'clock in the morning and getting back home at one or two o'clock in the morning. I wasn't getting enough sleep, you know? But once I let go of all that, it was like, man, like I can start my day how I want to. I can exercise in the morning, you know? I can go and do stuff with my kids on the weekend and not have to worry about, you know, what's gonna happen if a client needs me and there's an emergency. I could actually have a relationship with somebody that's not gonna feel like I'm ignoring them, you know? I can be present in their lives. You know, my life blossomed exponentially once I let go of this chain. So that's just one example of how, even though I was feeling like a victim at the time, like I had to turn that into a victor. Like I had to be my own superhero, even in that circumstance, because my life, it, it got so much better when I released myself from some of the stuff that was holding me back. What made, is there anything that ever broke you completely? Like, yeah, this is the most painful moment in my life and I have to change my life no matter what happens. Was there something like that? Because if I can give an example, if I talk about myself, there was a period like, you are always afraid to cross that line and see what is there on the other side of it because you are too comfortable though you are uncomfortable in in this space but you have to see you have to get to that breaking point what makes you to think like okay i'm done with this i don't want to be in this anymore i have to cross that line and see what's there for me after so was there any such kind of a situation what actually made you to break that line and cross that line though you're not comfortable crossing that line there was a couple of times um that that happened in oh definitely a few times that happened in my past i mean one of the one of the ones that um happened was when like when i was still somewhat in the sex work industry but i was still trying to get out also i wasn't really trying to get out i just had other opportunities that were presented to me uh, but I had a tendency to kind of revert back to, to sex work when I felt like I needed something. Like it was always like a backup, you know, when I needed something. Um, even though like I had, a, like I got accepted to the School of Science and Math when I was at 10, uh, in 10th grade. So I was able to go to college level courses very early. Um, and then I, you know, I got a full scholarship to undergrad as well. But there was like, anytime something would come up, there was something that would click and be like, hey, you know, you know, if you need something, you can always go to this. Um, but there was one time there was a client that I had and it was, it was such, I'm not going to go into all the details because I don't know how graphic we can get on YouTube. Um, but um, I remember he was on top of me and he was like this, he was a huge guy. Like I'm a big girl, but he was like three times my side, right? And like he, um, he had a, a bit like, a, because like his stomach would be over his pants, you know? Um, and his belts were always too tight. So he would have like this, like, I don't know, like belt burn. I don't even know what to call it on his stomach, you know, where he had this scar where his belt was all the time. And it was like pussing up and stuff like that. So when he was on top of me, like I could see him and it was like sweat and like pus dropping down. And I was like, I gotta get out of this 
either I'm going like I, I, I either I'm going to be an attorney or I'm gonna have to kill myself. You know, like I'm, I kind of I'm gonna have to do something else. You know, like it just really it really pushed me. Just and I, I remember just being stuck in this other world for a minute. You know, when I was in the experience, and I was like, you know what, I gotta do some. I gotta do something different. This is not going to work. And I remember I was going through a case at the time, a criminal case. And um, so I had these kind of like two separate lives. I had this academic life because they had, you know, accepted me into college at the 10th grade, right? So they was like, oh, so I so smart. We love her, right? And then I had this other world life. So I was handling these criminal cases like that nobody knew about <laughs> involved like so many different aspects like solicitation and Grand Theft Auto and stuff like that. So people would never like associate the two people, you know? And um, I was talking to my attorney and he was like, you know, you seem so much smarter than this. What are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you doing this? And I was like, you know, well, I used to want to be an attorney, but you know, I can never do that now because you know, everything just happened, you know, that's just not possible. He was like, Salah, he said, I know attorneys that have murdered people before. He was like, you can be an attorney if you want to be an attorney. He's like, don't let nobody tell you that you can't be an attorney. And I was like, really? Yeah, and that kind of like sparked something in me all over again, you know? Um, and I was, it was a hard, it was a hard transition trying to be that because I did not want to deal with people asking me questions because I wanted to pretend like that was a different person. Like I didn't want to go through that experience. I didn't want to be known as that girl. You know, so I hate it when people would ask me about it. I hate it having to answer questions. You know, when I went through attorney regulation, they, you know, they had to, like, they basically, I had to go through a, a board to, to verify that I was morally intact, you know, before practicing law and just going through all these questions. I was like, oh my God, you know, like, you know, like it was just so, I, I, I dreaded it. Like it just felt like the end of the world for me, you know? But once I got to the other side, you know, I was grateful that I kept walking. I was grateful that I kept going. I felt like that also when I lost my law firm. I told you when I lost my house, like I felt like it was the end of the world. Like it was because it was almost like when I lost all of my stuff and it wasn't even just losing my stuff because the stuff could be replaced. It was, it was the world. It felt like the world was telling me, I told you she was just a hooker. Why did you even let her pretend to be something else? That's what it felt like to me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it was like everything that I had been working for, you know, to get past my, my childhood, to get past that title, to get past that experience. It was like the world was saying, I told you, why'd you even try? You can't turn a hoe into a housewife. You know, like I kept hearing all these negative things, you know? And um, when when I first went through that transition, I was I was sad. I was depressed. You know, I ran away. I didn't want anybody to know who I was. I was tired of people. And I heard that you was a hooker. I heard this. I heard you got. I was tired. Of love. I went. I don't want to hear it no more. Go away. I don't want to hear it. You know, like. But I had I had to get to that other side where I could tell the story. You know, I'm I'm at a better position today. It's still hard. It's still hard to have a conversation about it but I'm better today than I was yesterday. Definitely. Definitely. You're a lot better than any day. Is that where your uh, introduction came from? Like a version of how to get away with murder? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that series. <laughs> yes. 
I love that series. I love the way she she takes her role, the, the way they portrayed her role there. She yes. has her vulnerable moments, get into the room, cry for her, herself. But when she walk out of the door, she's like, as your introduction again says, the unbreakable to project it that way. Yes, I cried at the season finale of How to Get Away with Murder. I was crying, I was like, oh, Annalise. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I love that series as well. Yes, yes. What did you understood like your pain has a purpose? <clears throat> it really was um, when the world started talking about my history, my past, because I was I was ashamed when they did. I I was sad, you know. I was running away, you know. I didn't want anybody to talk to me. Like, I didn't want nobody to have my telephone number. I didn't want nobody to have like any information about it. I was like, let me just hide. And and I'll, honestly, what I hid behind was motherhood. You know, like I hid behind mother. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be the best mom ever. You know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, raise the kids. I'm, all, all I want to be is a mom and wife. That's all I want to do, you know? And- um, Don't like me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I just, I had to, I had to push past it. I had to push past it and started doing some things for me, you know, because at that point I was doing, I was, I was doing everything for them that I possibly could. I was like, let me just do everything for them. And I'm going to be the best mama makeup for all those years I was working and I'm just going to do everything with them. I'm going to be active in their schools. I'm going to do their homework with them. I'm going to cook and clean every day. Yeah, but it, mm -mm. You know, I had to start doing some stuff for me. <laughs> I had to stop doing some stuff for me. So what is your call to action? Like, where did you start for this? It's so important that we learn to, to get to love ourselves and to forgive ourselves. A lot of times what happens is that, you know, society has told us that once we start on this journey to success, that it's, it's always going to be up. You know, like it's like, you know, all you got to do is go to college, get a job, find a wife, have some kids, get a house, white picket fence, happily ever after. And everybody is watching this journey from far off, right? So yeah. they think that the journey is always just straight up. They think it's an incline, like it's just going to be going up the mountain, right? Because they're looking at it from far away. But when you get close to the journey, right? When you get deep in the journey, you realize that is actually going like this, right? But we can't see that from far back. We just think, it's, oh my Lord, how wonderful that is, right? But when you get close up to the journey, you realize that there's gonna be some valleys and some pits and you're gonna go up then and go down again and go up again and go, go down again. Like it goes like this, but it can, it can, if you keep going, it will definitely keep going up until the rest of the world from far away, it would appear as though you're just going straight up, right? But if you stop, if you don't keep going, you can get trapped in that valley. You can get trapped in that pit, right? Because you can't see when you're in the valley, you got the, the, the two sides of the mountain on both sides of you like, shit, I'm stuck. You know, I can't, like, there's no way out, you know? And you can get stuck and you can get stuck there and you can just die and give up, right? But I promise you, if you keep moving forward, if you keep going, it'll keep going up. Yep. You know, they just don't tell you about those down parts yes. when they're telling your story. 
Exactly. Nobody likes to talk about the down points, I guess. They don't. The they way don't. I heard some people explain about that was like, something happened at the time. Yes, I'm out of it. I'm done. I don't want to talk about it. Why not talk about it is where I always get stuck. You talk about it. That's where you learn a lot of things. And that's where your foundation is from. Mm -hmm. So why not talk about it? Right. And it's not useful to our kids to give them this unrealistic idea of being perfect, you know, progress right. over perfe perfection. Like we're setting our kids up for mental institutions by trying to get them to strive for perfection. So we need to tell them about the downsides also. You are a part of National Women's Organization. What exactly do you do there? And what is that organization for? Um, well, I used to be the National Field Director for the National Organization for Women. The National Organization for Women is the largest women's organization in the world. Um, I organized the 2004 March for Women's Lives, which was the largest march on Washington for its time, uh, with 1.2 to roughly 1.3 million people marching on Washington. So we organized the March for Women's Lives, the 2004 uh, March on Washington. Um, now I'm actually in Georgia. So now I organize their White Women's Can We Talk. Um, it's a national tour where women of color, um, in particular Black women, um, have conversations, those hard conversations with white women around the countries about what is happening around race, right? The, a lot of times what happens is that <clears throat> we can't really have the conversations because we're afraid somebody's going to call us racist or say that, you know, that we're politically incorrect or judge us, right? So we have all these questions we wanna say and ask to each other that we really don't say or ask because we're afraid of the repercussions. So the National Tour of White Women Can We Talk is a conversation for all of those hard questions between white women and, and women of color. <clears throat> it also um, is a place where we have conversations about, you know, why white women made some of their decisions in this and the past political election. As we know, like 55 and 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Um, so it started when Triana Arnold James, um, she said, you know what, you know, how in the world that white women like vote for the man that said he was gonna grab y'all by the pussy. How did 55% of y'all vote for them white women? Can we talk? That's how it really originally started. And she asked me to come on this, um, to help to create this tour for her. When I was uh, working as a national field director, we actually toured for two years just to get white people, white women and women of color and allies and feminists to join forces together. Because contrary to popular belief, there are a lot of little niches within the feminist movement that might not necessarily always agree, right? So getting them to come together, have a conversation and work towards the greater good so that we could have the largest march on Washington and show the government that we were not playing about women's rights, right? That was hard. So we had to actually go on a tour for two years around the country to get everybody to unite together. So after that tour, Triana Arnold James brought me on and said, hey, you know what? I really want you um, to help to coordinate and facilitate the White Women Can We Talk tour. So now um, I coordinate and organize the White Women Can We Talk tour um, around the country. And then actually now just went international. 
So um, the initial part of the white woman can we talk to her, it's just a, it's an online conversation that we have where we're just talking to each other about the hard questions that we need to have a conversation about. And then also creating new memories so that we're not so afraid of each other in the future. Um, but the second aspect of it is that we do workshops in person where we drill and deep dive into each other's um, solidarity and then trying to figure out how we can work together as allies. And sometimes that might be a three-day workshop where we deep dive a workshop together. It might be a week residency that we have where we deep dive and workshop together. The online conversation is just the initial tip of the iceberg to show people that there are people around the world that want to have this conversation, you know, and this is how it is helping us. And then we do the deeper work that's mm -hmm. actually in person. What is your short-term goal and a long-term goal? My short-term short goal. My short-term goal is to love as much as possible. My long-term goal is to love as long as possible. <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> I'm seeing behind you, follow one course until successful. Yes. Follow on course into successful, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, because I'm an entrepreneur and part of what I do with my company now, my business architect firm, um, is that we help um, small to medium sized businesses to be able to scale their hustle to enterprise status. Mm -hmm. So we go in and we build their infrastructure because most of the time entrepreneurs are trying to wing it. They're trying to reinvent the wheel. They're just doing trial and error. So we go in and we create proven systems for them so that they can build their business and it can be efficient, right? Um, that it's not so dependent on them, um, that, that it's measurable um, and that they have their time back, right? They have their time and their freedom back. You know, and also they're giving back to the world. Um, the other thing about our company is that we also, you know, like I said before, I think I might have said this in the beginning, I can't remember, right? Um, but it, we also, like most of our clients are, um, are not just attorneys or doctors or financial advisors. They're, you know, the go-to people in the industry. So we take them on tour around the country. But as entrepreneurs, a lot of times we have a thousand different ideas going on in our lives and our mind at one time. So one month we were like, oh my God, you know, I want to start, you know, a shoe company. And then you're like, oh no, I want to start real estate. Oh no, I want to do a clothing line. Oh, I want to have a podcast. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to do influencer marketing. We have all these different ideas that are going on in our brains. And that is beautiful because that is one of the amazing things about being our, an entrepreneur is that we don't have to limit ourselves, but it becomes overwhelming and we never get anything completed yes. if we yes. don't follow one course, right? So this right here is my reminder to myself because I am an entrepreneur and I have that mindset where I'm doing a hundred things at one time as well. Um, but also to the people that I'm working with, so follow one course, just, to, just, just not to say you can't do those other things, right? But follow one course until successful. And then we'll help you figure out how you can create those other avenues on your pathway. They just don't have, all, have to all be done today. And as we expand your team and your resources, then you can do more things. But initially, let's follow this one course until successful. Until successful. So define success in your words. Success. You know, um, somebody asked me that recently. They was like, what is success to you? And um, I said, you know what? It used to be that I wanted the earned right to do nothing. 
that was my definition of success wow. previously. You know, because I, I was always doing so many things in the world, doing so many things for the kids, doing so many things for my ex-husband, doing so many things for the house, for the pets, the dogs, for all of my clients, for my employees, social justice issues, all of these things going on. I was doing so much and I just wanted to like, you know what? I want to get to the point where I've, I've earned my right to do nothing because I'm tired, right? Now, you know, I still, you know, I, I do want the earned right to do nothing, but success to me now, like I really, I'm coming, I'm stepping into a happy place in my life that I'm really, really excited about. So I'm looking to define my new definition of success, right? And I had to learn that from my history as a sex worker, right? Because as a sex worker, like success used to be for everybody else. You know, you have to have this, you have to do this, you gotta go to school, you gotta get married, all this stuff. Like that was never really an option for us. So we were able to define our own avenues of success just by being able to connect to each other, being able to love and support each other. We were able to define success. Um, so now I know, you know, and I live it every day that I can define my own success in every aspect of my life. It doesn't have to be what anybody else says success is. It doesn't have to be what they're doing. It doesn't have to be what my mama said. It doesn't have to be what my daddy said. I can define it for my success. So now I'm so excited about this next journey in my life and the happy place that I found that I am defining my new success with love because that's what is driving me right now. What's your biggest strength that you say? My biggest strength? Um, my biggest strength to me is the power to reframe and rephrase things in my life. Um, so many times, like I told you, I felt like things were happening to me. And it was like, once I start realizing that things were happening for me and my life, my world changed. You know, like once I start seeing the world differently, the world start changing for me, you know? So I think that that is a superpower. The power to reframe and rephrase everything that's happening in your life, even the bad stuff, that's a superpower, you know? And I love it, I love it. My, my son said, he, he's like, I'm gonna create a comic book with you in it. What do you want your superpower to be? That's what he told me that today, I think. And I was like, I don't know, whatever superpower you think I should do, but I'm about to go back and tell him today, my superpower is the ability to reframe and rephrase. Now you got to put that in superpower terms. You know, that's what I'm about to tell him. <laughs> What's your weakness in that case? My weakness? Hmm. My weakness, cleaning, probably. Cleaning is my weakness because I don't like cleaning up. I have to do it, but it's weakness. <laughs> like, but, you know, one day, you know, I will empower myself to find some other alternatives. You know, I would say cleaning is my weakness. That makes me to clear my mind. I clean all the time. My son says like, yeah, you have OCD. Please stay out of me. Yeah, you know, OCD, like, you know, yeah. Like, I think that every, like, OCD person needs a person like a partner that is not like that doesn't clean you know that's like that that combination together that's a power couple right there like one person cleans one person does something else power couple babies that that's that's the power I never I never found anybody so I'm fine <laughs> <laughs> I never found anybody to have that power couple there so <laughs> On a funny note, if I can ask, like, yeah, what is your weakness? Like, 
for me if somebody asks food is my weakness well you know i had gastric bypass surgery so i still i, I do think that food is my weakness or well you know, I, i'm not i'm not gonna say the, there's no weaknesses there's only lessons and blessings you know, there's only lessons and blessings, you know? Um, so everything I do, even the food, everything I experience is a lesson. So even the food that I'm eating is a lesson. So um, I wouldn't say I have any weaknesses. I just have lessons learned. Then I'll say like, the lesson I like is food. A lesson, yes, that's the lesson I like, you know, um, I, I do have to, you know, like I, I do have to work on uh, my eating habits because even though I can't eat a lot now, I still eat the wrong things. And that's what's thing with me. Even I don't eat a lot, but I eat all the wrong things. <laughs> yeah, you know. So that that's one of the things that um that's a journey that I'm going to be taking, you know, in the future and in the present is to making better choices about what I'm deciding to bless my temple with. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. If I can request, I wanted to request and end the show with your poetry. Okay. A poem, Walk on Water, right? Because we talked about walking through a journey, right? So we're going to talk about walking on water. This actually I wrote for my son before he was even born. Um, and I, I originally actually thought that I, was, I wrote the poem about my son. But in actuality, I wrote the poem for my brother, you know? But I thought it was for my son. Um, he'd be six. Knee-length jean shorts and a Spider-Man t-shirt milk and donut powdered smiles, his locks would be shoulder length by now. And I walked 360 miles in his shoes to help him travel through the full cipher of his knowledge, to take his falls when he stumbles, the scratches of life on his knees, the hiccups in his tears, and trust me, there will be. There'll be times when he'll fall to his knees and he can't seem to stop bleeding. He'll hit the most sensitive parts of his funny bones and he won't be able to laugh. He'll twist his ankles in ways that will make him think it's broken. I can hear his gasp for air, trying to make out the words to tell his story, but the salty water keeps pushing them down. Too much of a revolutionary to call them tears, exaggerating his tears through his toothless frowns, though it's not an exaggeration to him because he feels like it's broken. Yes, mommy. Please pick me up. I've fallen and I can't get up. I need you to come get me. And I'll run to him, holding out my arms, holding back my own salty water alarms. And I'll tell him, no, get up and walk. We have all walked on water to get here. Here is where it hurts, through aching ankles. When your arch nemesis becomes the arc of your foot felt detached from a soldier, tiptoeing through the trench landmines of a rat carrying another brother soldier on his back, but it was already broken by the bushes who sprouted too thick to see the guns. You better run, nigga, run through wounded windpipes. Even when you can't seem to catch your breath and tsunamis have left your lungs full of bullshit like Katrina through lakes of limp and lifeless bodies left your lungs full of bullshit like ice crashing through the crevices of Texas felt just like a fist to the face. Could have sworn I heard Trump say Anna may just eat the cake but didn't, didn't, didn't Texas walk on water anyway. Then there was Jesus who came walking on top of the sea. Peter called out to him and said, Lord, if it is you commanded me to walk and he said, come now, Peter, step down from his boat. His friend looked on in awe, looked down at the wind and the water and became afraid of what he saw. Now, now, Lord, help me. Save your child. Jesus stretched his hands out to him and said, 
why do you doubt? Look back at the water you've treaded and realize you have nothing left to fear now. We have all walked on water to get here. Here is not a poem about religion. Here is a poem about being fearless because you don't have to be Jesus to turn water into wine. Single mothers do it all the time. We overcome obstacles with each stride, but we keep walking. Sister soldiers, keep your guns up. Don't look down and just keep walking. We need a hurt. Don't stop loving. Don't look down and just keep walking, baby boy. Just keep walking. There's a story in your step and sometimes life will hurt and might not let you tell it yourself, but walk on water. You'll twist your ankles in ways that will make you think it's broken. The tears will come like oceans. So walk on water, baby boys, walk your stories. Thank you. Okay, thank you for tuning in and you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.